Uh, listen, let me have you turn to Romans chapter 9, which is where we will be this morning, and pull out your sermon notes if that is something that's helpful for you. Up here I'm holding a common quarter, nothing special about it, and there are two sides to it. And these two sides are contained in a single coin. Heads or tails, something that we did often as kids to make a decision of who would kick the football off first, we would flip a coin. Heads is showing right now, and just because heads is showing doesn't mean that the backside of the quarter ceases to exist. Consider you for a moment. You are far more complex than two sides, but there are more than one side to you that are contained in the whole. Now, if there's more complexity to you than just heads or tails, imagine this, that we are created in the image of a creator who's infinitely more complex than just two sides to a coin. This morning, as I reference a coin in reference to God, I want you to imagine this reality. I'm taking truths about God as if I were to take the ocean and contain it in a Dixie cup. I'm going to reference God like a quarter in some ways to help us get our brain around it. But it is shrinking down some truth so we can kind of get it in smaller sides to things. God is love. And God chooses to bless. And God is all-knowing. And God is working His plan. These are truths we just sang about. We sing about them every week. And God is a God of wrath. God chooses to avenge. God hands out righteous judgments. Two different sides contained in the singular whole. Heads and tails helps us describe God. Look at the image on the screen for a minute. The words are intentionally written in the shadows. I did that because of this. I wonder if you, like me, have wrestled in your spiritual journey with at times considering taking parts of God and leaving Him in the shadows. It begs the question, are there parts of God's character that we should hide? With Paul, I respond this way, Meganoita, may it never be. There is no aspect to God's character that we should ever feel shame in rolling out and talking about joyfully and bearing witness to and being excited to discover. Here's one of those that may cause such consternation in you as you talk about God. Heads or tails? What is it? Heads. You've got it, Gria. I'd give you the quarter, but I need to reference this quarter some more. Is this how God chooses who to save and who not to save? Is it arbitrary? Is it random? I think when we talk about the doctrine of election, which is exactly what we're talking about this morning, this is one of those parts of God's character we think maybe we should leave that in the shadows, maybe because I don't understand it fully, and maybe because that's a part of God's character I'd rather not put out, especially to my non-Christian family who I so care about. Imprinted right on this coin are these words, in God we trust. In God we trust is the exact question at hand that Romans chapter 9 is trying to wrestle with and deal with this morning. There's one more feature to this title slide. Some of you with really sharp eyes see 
that there's a text written at the very bottom, and it's frustrating for most of us to try and see what the text is. If you look at your handout in that little tiny picture, you'll never see it. If you look at the front of your bulletin, if you look hard enough, let your eyes adjust and maybe twist this, the paper in your hand just so you may see the light bounce off of the wording such that you could read out the text that we're going to look at this morning. Friends, listen to me. That is a metaphor of the text we're going to look at this morning. If you just glance at it, you'll never see it. It will just sort of frustrate you. I'm sure there's something there, but I can't see it. I don't see it at all. You look long enough at this text, it, it will reveal its meaning for you. Some of you by faith are like, I don't have good enough eyes, I, I can't see it. But by faith, I'm going to trust that there's a text there. As we get into this, let that be sort of a, a metaphor for what we're doing. Now, I warned you that rapids were coming last week. And I also warned you that there were some hurdles that might need to be navigated. And there are two in specific that are going to leave us with sort of some sore muscles in a really good way tomorrow morning. And they are the intellect and this current picture of God. There are intellectual challenges to understanding the doctrine of election. The greatest minds have discussed and debated this for centuries. And guess what? The Bible is correct. Created beings can't possibly fully comprehend their creator. Any more than you could try to explain football to a ladybug this afternoon. There are parts to what's going on that we have no comprehension of, and it makes our brain hurt. The second hurdle is this. You've all walked in here with a current picture of God. My question for you, is it true or is it false? Is it accurate or inaccurate? I think we can all agree with this. It's incomplete. The picture we currently have of God is incomplete. I hope that's true because I hope when I'm 60, if God waits that long, I'll have a more accurate understanding. It's incomplete because I'm not done yet. I'm still growing and seeking after a God that I, I, will, I will never fully comprehend. I want you to ask this question of yourself. I asked it of myself this week. How many times looking back on your life did you judge silently in your mind that God was late with something? Maybe you judged in your mind, God, you're being unfair. God, you're really distant. And then maybe like me, time passes and you're able to look back on that season of life and say, wow, I was all wrong about you, God. The truth is, whatever picture you walked in here with God in your mind, you may be wrestling with silently judging God. We'll look next week, by the way, at what it looks like for a piece of pottery to judge its potter. And that's kind of an interesting side note. But the truth is, we have a current picture of God, and some of that may be challenged this morning by the text that we have. I believe that today you will either recall or maybe some of you will discover for the first time some glorious sides to God. So why is it that God inspires hard texts in the Bible? If God is the perfect communicator and he's the perfect lover, why is it that we struggle to understand? John Piper wrote an excellent book called Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. It's directed at pastors in one small chapter and it says this, Pastors, show your church why God inspired hard texts. And this list that he paired is so good for us as we launch into this that I want to just share it with you. He brings up two aspects of God's character that's revealed in scriptures. First John 4, 8, that God is love. And secondly, from Isaiah 45, 22, that God is God. 
And then he talks about some different sort of impulses that are created by these two truths. God is love and God is God. Here they are. God is love unleashes the impulse of simplicity. God is God unleashes the impulse of complexity. God is love unleashes the impulse of accessibility. And God is God unleashes the impulse of profundity. That God is love encourages a focus on the basics. And that God is God encourages a focus on comprehensive. The basics says, uh, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Comprehensiveness, on the other hand, says, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. That God is love impels us to be sure that the truth gets to all people. And that God is God impels us to be sure that what gets to all people is actually the truth. God is love unleashes the impulse toward fellowship. And God is God unleashes the impulse toward scholarship. God is God tends to create extroverts and evangelists. And God is love or God is God tends to create contemplatives and poets. And finally, God is love helps foster intimacy. And God is God helps create a sense of majesty. I want you to look at this list for a minute. Some of you don't like certain aspects of this list. They make you feel uncomfortable. And as your loving shepherd, you know what I say to you? Good. That is a great thing. The truth is, you probably feel more at home with some of these aspects of God's nature than you do with other aspects of God's nature. This is why sometimes when you are singing with your church family, you are thinking this. Oh, this song is so, I don't know how to put it, mushy. It's so touchy-feely. Why does this rub me wrong? People seem to be tracking with it, but it's just sort of rubbing me wrong. Do you know that a few feet away, there might be someone who is sitting there on a different song saying this. A song is so distant and heavy and, dare I say, cold. It may be true, but it just feels a million miles away from me at this point. Rob and I, as we have led worship services together for 10 years, periodically have this conversation. Me. Rob, I don't really like this song that we're doing. Rob, good. We're doing it anyways. Rob, I don't really like that song. Good. We're doing it anyways. This is what I have in mind. Every week, the band, we recognize this as a band. You may sing songs that don't immediately track with you. When you look at this list as a whole, here's what you see. You see a more complete, more full picture of the glorious sides of God. Have we even begun to scratch the surface of all that we could say about God? Of course not. But let's do this. Let's offer respect and affirmation and understanding as the church family comes together in community groups, as the church family works together on a project, as the church family comes together and tries to comprehend God. You know what happens when we have a more complete picture of God? It begins to break down stereotypes. There are some of your friends and family, maybe you're sitting in here this morning, that view Christians as a bunch of brainless sort of romantics that have their head buried in the sand, and they just kind of just, it's all going to be fine, and they don't really think. Other people have come across Christians that are hard-nosed, airtight in their logic, never wrong, and about as feeling as a cold fish. 
Those are stereotypes and caricatures of what a Christian is. What happens in this building is a far more rounded and complete picture of that, isn't it? And there will be challenges to your own understanding of God and your own experience of God as we celebrate that and God leads us to discover who he is. The doctrine is called the doctrine of election. I wrote a definition of it, for a very simple definition of it. You can all go to your own systematic theology book and Google and probably find far more complex ones, but it's this. That those who freely come to God are those whom God has freely chosen. Some of you see this rub immediately and you already know what it is, but some of you need some help. So let me try to show it to you in really simple terms. God is omniscient. That is, he knows everything. God is omnipotent. That means he's all-powerful. And God chooses and saves people and calls people for salvation. That's sort of one side of it. On the flip side of it, we see very clearly in Scripture that man is responsible and going to be held responsible for his actions. Man is responsible to respond to the call of God in faith. Do you see that those two roads, if you track those roads, at some point in your mind you say, wait a minute, how can those both be? And the argument often goes like this. Is it divine will or is it man's responsibility? The title this morning isn't Heads or Tails, it's Heads and Tails. And I just invite you to sort of leave those truths both in place as we read the text this morning. Just kind of looking, by the way, at the passage, this was news to me. When I studied last week and I drew this title, Seriously, Don't Reject Jesus, right out of the text... What you see is an emphasis for Paul and his countrymen pleading with them to choose Jesus and not reject Jesus. That lives side by side in Romans with a famous passage on the doctrine of election, God's sovereignly choosing people. And those are next door neighbors in Romans chapter 9. And they kind of hold these tensions together. What Paul is doing in this section is he is justifying God, as it were. He's pulling back and looking at these two specific aspects of his character this morning. Is God truthful and is God fair? And if you are a living human being this morning, truth and justice matter to you. It's just hardwired into what the human experience is all about. So let's take a look. Is God true to his word? Romans 9, chapter 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. Paul reasoned with Jews from the scriptures. This was his norm. We saw this last week. To the Jew first and then the Gentile. The way he did that is he would reason with them, trying to convince them from the scriptures that they already held as a starting point of belief and said, this Jesus whom you crucified is the promised Messiah. And the line of logic he would bring up is this. You've heard this phrase before. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why was that so important? Because Paul is wanting to show this promised Messiah is from the promised lineage that God's been promising our people all along. It's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You don't remember this because I had to go look it up and I preached the sermons. In Romans 4, he's already dealt intensely with Abraham. 
And his main point in Romans chapter 4, dealing with Father Abraham, is this, that it wasn't by Israel's specialness of blood that they got in on the promise, but rather his sovereign grace. He just chose to bless them. So he's, always dealt, he's already dealt extensively with Abraham, and now he's going to kind of move down the line. Here's what I want to show you something. In fact, I hope if you don't see this already, um, that you would see this moving forward. That when you hear the phrase Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you would track the stories that Paul's going to lay out here, that that would be sort of a shorthand for the gospel in the Old Testament. Because what you see with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is that the lineage doesn't follow from human effort. The lineage doesn't follow from, from blood, from human blood. It is a track record of God's sovereign grace. Think about this for a minute. God passed over everyone else on the planet at that point, and he went to Abram, and he said, I choose you to become a nation. After choosing Abraham, he chose Isaac to carry the promised lineage, not Ishmael. Moving forward one generation, he chose Jacob to be the one who would be served by the older brother, Esau. We see God's choosing woven through all of this. Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 6. Follow along with me. It says this. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Verse 9. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah, moving forward a generation, had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had not yet done either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated." Paul's already done a lot of work to talk about this. Look at me for a second. That there is an Israel contained within Israel. That there's sort of this remnant that God's always been dealing with that is contained within the broader Israel. And in this passage specifically, verse 6, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. And verse 8, not all are children of the flesh, but children of the promise. So there's an Israel within Israel that Paul is driving at, and he's clarifying the promise, and he does what we should do. He points to what's written down. We say this all the time around this church, that if something's important, God wrote it down. So it's in the book. We do this today with a contract, with a lease. Hey, there's, just, there's no misunderstanding. Let's both sign on the dotted line of this contract. God wrote an Old Testament and a New Testament, and he wrote some things down. This is familiar history. These are familiar passages to Jewish people. And his first example is Isaac and Ishmael, and he's trying to drive home this point. It's children of the promise, not children of the flesh. 
For those of you new to the program, or maybe just by way of reminder, Abraham and Sarah, Abraham's promise to create a nation, to create a nation you need children, and he's promised to have a child. And there's a big problem. What's the problem with Abraham and Sarah that would make that hard to believe? Yeah. Super old and barren. So what does Sarah do? Sarah helps out God, right? Sarah gives her maidservant to go and sleep with her husband and produce an offspring. And frankly, a giant mess ensues. The offspring of that maidservant is Ishmael. So when Paul brings up uh, Ishmael and Isaac, it would have been immediately clear, oh, that mess. This is the story that he is referring to and talking about. I live with a three-year-old right now. I live with two three-year-olds, actually. But my daughter, three-year-old, I've mentioned this before, she is in this phase. I do it. So whether it's tying shoes or cutting watermelon or crossing the street or coloring, she wants to do it all. She's ready to take on the world. Now, as parents, there are times we say, Oh, would you like to do it? And we kind of nurture and help her and let her do things. I'm one of those who gladly leaves my house with the kids dressing themselves. I feel no shame in how my kids look when they dress themselves. I just let them choose. It's not that big of a deal to me. Some of you are horrified at that. We can still be friends. If she's trying to cut watermelon with a big, sharp knife, I do it! We say, no, no, you don't. And we take the big knife away. Here's what's fascinating raising a three-year-old right now that says I do it with just about everything. As God's kids, there are times we just say, I do it. And when a three-year-old says, I do it, often a giant mess ensues. What's fascinating is, could God not have stopped Sarah from giving the the maidservant to, to Abraham? Of course he could have. He didn't. He let her move forward with, I do it. And true to form, a giant mess ensued. God's either sovereign or he's not. And he's sovereign over that. And so that's what happened. After Sarah died, Abraham had six other sons, according to Genesis 25, with his new wife, Keturah. But here's the point. It wasn't Ishmael or any of those other six sons. It was Isaac. Why? Because it's not about blood descent. It's about the child of the promise. That's how God chose. He passed over other blood relatives of Abraham, and he chose Isaac. And this is the exact part of the text, specifically Genesis 18.10, that Paul draws attention to. And he points out very specifically by quoting, For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I'll return and Sarah will have a son. Not Sarah, I do it through her friend, former friend. Now here's what a Jewish mind would be tempted to think. A Jewish mind would be tempted to think this. Of course that is true. Ishmael was the illegitimate son of Abraham, whereas Isaac was the legitimate son because Sarah was the legitimate wife. Of course that's true. Do you think Jews cared about legitimacy? Of course they did. So so they're thinking, you know, Ishmael's born to a slave woman, and Sarah, on the other hand, gave birth to Isaac. He was born of a free woman and a legitimate, rightful person. So here's what Paul does. He gives that illustration, illustrating God chose Abraham. God chose Isaac, not Ishmael. It's not about blood. And now he moves on one generation to talk about Jacob and Esau. Keep in mind, 
It's the promise, not the flesh. It's the promise, not the flesh. In verses 11, 13, Jacob and Esau, born of the same biological father, and yet the older will serve the younger. Consider for a moment. Couldn't God have said, look, they're both born at the same time. We're going to share the blessing. It's going to be both of them together. He didn't do that. In fact, he passed over common logic of the day, tradition of the day. He passed over the oldest, the, 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 the firstborn, and he went to the younger, to Jacob. Again, just a clear picture that God is working redemptive history by his choice and choosing Jacob over Esau. Verse 11 says this, look at it. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that the purpose of election might continue. If you write in your Bible, please circle the word continue. If you have a Bible app, tap it and select highlight so you can remember that word continue. God is immutable. That's a character trait that means this. He does not change. It's from this word. He does not mutate. God is not a mutant. Why is that important? It's important because of this. God is perfect, and any change would, by necessity, make him worse than he currently is, and he can't possibly do that. Imagine a mathematically perfect circle. Some of you geeks like love that image. Oh, ooh, a mathematically perfect circle. Do you see that to change any tiny ounce of that circle would make it less of a circle than it currently is? That's God in his perfection. God is utterly perfect, and to change it all would be to change for the worse. Because he's already perfect. So that Paul writes that God's purpose of election might continue. He is showing them, friends, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, us. God's been doing this all along. In verses 1 to 5, he says this of his kinsmen. Kinsmen, we have the patriarchs. That lineage of promise, sovereign grace, gospel-pointing-to message of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is ours. This is God's divine grace happening to us. We're in on this. Continue means this is how God is working and he doesn't change. He's trying to drive home this point. Racial Israel is never the storyline that God has been writing in all of our history. It's instead a lineage of sovereign grace. Next, what Paul does is he preemptively answers a question that he knew would come up. Is God fair? Is that fair? Do you know why he knew that that would come up? To the Jew first and then the Gentile. What was Paul's habit? Go into a city, find the synagogue. If there wasn't a synagogue, find out where they're meeting. And reason with the Jews from the scriptures that this Jesus is in this promised sovereign grace lineage. So he knew from experience of course, they're going to raise this question, is that fair? Last night, two of my kids got to go um, to do something special as part of a birthday celebration. We went to an earthquakes game. I don't have just two kids. I have a lot more than two kids. You know what I preemptively know as a parent? If I'm going to tell two kids they get to go do something, what am I going to hear from all the other kids? That's not fair, unless it's chores. If I tell two kids they're going to do chairs, it's crickets and they all disappear. It's kind of an interesting phenomenon. Here's what every parent knows. If you're going to give special blessing to your two kids, are you fair as a parent? We try to be fair as parents, don't we? We don't want to show favoritism. That's wicked in a family. But does that mean everything's even, Stephen, all the time? Absolutely not. I didn't have 11 tickets to the Earthquakes game, and I still like to eat and drive my car, so I'm not going to buy 11 tickets to the Earthquakes game. 
Instead, two kids got to go, and I preemptively decided in my head, how would I answer the that's not fair thing? This is exactly what Paul's doing. If you open your mouth for Jesus and bear witness to who he is and what he's done, you can begin to predict some of the pushback you'll get. Why? Just experience. You'll know that this sort of stirs up in people. Wait a minute, is that even fair? And so Paul just addresses it uh, right up front. He immediately deals with the fairness of God. Is God unjust? He flatly just denies it because God is God. He says, Meganoita, there's no injustice in God. And he goes on to refute the ideal, the, the idea by pointing to, uh, again, think about the coin. Um, he goes on to point to um, two different characters in the same historical instance, which would have been very, very familiar to any Jewish person. Moses and the Pharaoh of Egypt. Remember the Exodus, the Red Sea, that whole thing? He's now going to use that historical instance to kind of discuss two sides uh, to this. With Moses, when you think about him receiving the Ten Commandments, the whole nation rebels and they go and worship a golden calf. What's the penalty for idol worship? What does the law say? Death. Moses comes down from receiving the Ten Commandments and God takes out almost 3,000 of the rebels. And yet he shows mercy to the rest of the nation. Hear me. He had every legal right to wipe out the whole nation. He told them what the law was. The clear expectation was there. He passed over a lot of the nation. And he chose to exact justice to 3,000 of them. Listen carefully to this. No one in the nation of Israel received injustice. Some received justice. Some received mercy. Let me extrapolate that to the rest of mankind. No person you ever come in contact with will receive injustice from a just God. The non-elect receive justice. The elect receive mercy. That's a picture going on with Moses. Now, John MacArthur rightly points out this. Self-centered man rebels at such a notion. And even many Christians vainly try to explain away the clear truth that God is God and that by definition, whatever he does can be nothing but just and righteous. He needs no justification for anything he does, including calling some men to salvation and not calling others. He has always acted thus. We can only acknowledge with Paul and with full belief but far from full understanding. How about the flip side of the coin? If that's Moses, let's look at Pharaoh for a second. Among his other sins, what was the Pharaoh of Egypt guilty of? Systemic slavery. Infanticide based on race. I said at the start of this talk that if you are a human being, a part of the human experience hardwired into you is you care about truth and justice. You think that systemic slavery, and that infanticide based on race is wicked. You know what's fascinating? I think we could go out of this building all around our great nation and find people who don't even believe in absolute right and wrong, certainly don't believe in wickedness, and something would stir in them and would say, that's wicked. That's wrong. Why? Because we care about truth and we care about justice. This is Pharaoh. The hardening of Pharaoh's heart by God is one of the most difficult passages, not the only one, but a very difficult passage for people to grab hold of. In fact, I had a middle, a middle school PE teacher get a hold of one of my sons and realize, oh, your dad's the pastor next door. Ask him about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. He wanted to kind of play stump the dad, stump the Christian, stump the pastor next door. 
It's sort of a zinger that sometimes people will kind of throw you. What's that all about? Why is God hardening Pharaoh's heart? As with Moses, God's chosen people, so it is true of the enemies of God's people and the most wicked people you could think of. Here's the, here's the clear state of Moses and the most wicked person you could think of. Look to your left and my right, the word ruin. That word ruin on the wall represents chapters 1 through 3 of Romans. That represents this truth that Paul has already laid out. Every mouth is shut before God to defend their innocence. You say, but I don't even know the law. I don't care about the law. That's not for me. I'm not a Bible believer. Paul says this, even if you don't have the law, if you're a Gentile, you care nothing about the Ten Commandments, nothing about the law. God has written a law in your own conscience and your own mouth bears witness that you can't live up to the standard that you hold for other people. Every mouth is shut before a holy God that we are pronounced guilty. That includes Pharaoh and Moses, the chosen people of God and the enemies of God. Verse 14, is there injustice on God's part? Meganoita. There is another side to the love and the blessing and the redemptive plan that we sing about and celebrate and talk about openly. And that is this backside that sometimes gets left in the shadows. That a sovereign God, as he is raising up kings and kingdoms, is in control of. If you want to talk about what Pharaoh deserves, does Pharaoh deserve to be raised up as the Pharaoh? No, he doesn't. Does he deserve to remain on the throne as long as God leaves him on the throne? Absolutely not. If God's staying hand of grace were not in Pharaoh's life, he would have been wiped out long ago. Now, lest you feel super removed from that, think about your own life. Regard the patience of God as salvation for you and your loved ones. And that person's such a rebel, they deserve judgment. And God's staying hand is giving them time to repent. By the hardening and ever-increasing rebellion of Pharaoh, God's word is accomplished. Now, what Paul doesn't reference, by the way, that if you go back to the Old Testament, you'll see, is that Pharaoh also hardened his own heart. So again, these are held in tension. Pharaoh hardening his own heart against God, God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Paul says this, that what he was trying to accomplish was to show his power, number one, and that his name would be proclaimed throughout the earth. Consider the Exodus story. Consider the plagues. Consider the Exodus. Consider the Red Sea. Consider the salvation of the Jews. No great Egyptian pharaoh could thwart God's plan. God's power's on display. Check. How about number two? Who doesn't know today, all these years later, of the Exodus story of the Red Sea? God's name is proclaimed around the whole world. Isaiah said this in Isaiah 55. So shall my word be that it goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Church, trust God's word. Even when it doesn't make sense. Even when it seems to be held in tension. A lot of times God's Chosen people or those who are sympathetic toward God are a three-year-old saying, I do it. Let me help God make look better. And that's how they would talk because they're three. Um, they try to help God in their image. 
in his image. And so they, they try to work about, and what happens with that is a giant mess. The great British preacher Charles Spurgeon was approached one time by a woman. As to Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, a woman once said. I cannot understand why God should say that he hated Esau. That, Spurgeon replied, is not my difficulty, madam. My trouble is to understand how could God love Jacob. Israel is the object of God's special favor because of his choosing, and not because of their specialness of deed, not because of their specialness of blood. And that's how we get in on it too. Let me highlight some ways that Paul engaged with doubters. Those that he loved, those that he pled with and cried over that I think we should mimic. Number one is be a witness. You notice that Paul doesn't roll out airtight explanation of this in this passage? That's not his aim and goal. He holds equally to some powerful truths. Surely Paul too has some questions, but he came to trust God's word as true and his actions as just. Number two, we see him answer objections with the word of God. He doesn't just use familiar history to them. He goes to specific passages. It's important not just to have history lessons, but the way you interpret those, that history is really imperative. And God has interpreted history through the writing down in Scripture. Verse 17, he specifically calls out, he's quoting Scripture. Number three is to evangelize like Paul. How did Paul evangelize? He became all things to all people that he might save how many? Some. Dr. Luke, recording in the book of Acts, is discussing one such evangelism time, and here's how he writes it. And when the Gentiles heard this, heard what? The evangelizing of Paul. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Dr. Luke records that almost in passing. But there's the doctrine of election, that sovereign choosing of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and these Gentiles. Those are the ones who were appointed to believe. And that's who got saved. This doctrine is given not just as a means of comfort to the elect, but as a means to fan the flames of evangelism. Here's why I can say that. At the end of Paul's life, he can say this, God used me to save the number of people that he chose to use me to save. But during his life... He became all things to all people. Why? Because there are revealed things that belong to us, and there are secret things that belong to God. You know what God didn't tell him? He didn't tell him the number of the elect. He didn't tell him who was elect. That's how we can hold this intention. This ought to fan the flame of us sharing this with people. Anyone who, who agrees with me on certain points of the doctrine of election, but their life looks like this. They kind of fold their arms and go, see, it's up to God anyways. He's already got the number. He's doing the choosing. They don't understand the biblical doctrine of election in my mind. I think there are well-meaning people who aren't living out much of what the Bible talks about and holds up as true because they aren't willing to hold up seemingly uh, irreconcilable truths together in tension. 
It ought to fan the flame of evangelism. We've been ending our services with this. What does God do and what do we do? We know that God remains consistent. This is his continuing work. Paul is careful to point out, we don't chuck the Old Testament in favor of this new thing. In fact, there are strong ties that he keeps bridging for that. That's critical for the Christian faith. Secondly, we know that God works mysteriously. He chooses, he plans, he reveals, and he conceals. And he gets to do it without asking our permission. What do we do? We trust. Belief is a part of trust, but it's more than that. It's a confidence in God's plan. It's also a confidence in God's character. Maybe you need to repent today. God, there are aspects of your character that I haven't felt comfortable with, that I haven't been able to explain, and so I've intentionally left it in the dark, even in my own life. You know what happens to sin when you leave it in the dark? What does it do? It grows in power. It sort of sits there and grows like a cancer. You drag sin into the light of confession. Scriptures tell us this. Confess your sins to one another and and, and you'll be healed. There's power in just bringing light to this. Secondly, we ask, seek, and knock. Some of you are immensely comfortable with mystery, with ambiguity, and you follow Jesus in there happily. Many of you aren't. God works in mysterious ways. Continue to pursue him. Don't settle for a God that you neatly understand and are happy with. I hope when I die, I have far more questions than I have right now. I think there's a certain evidence with someone as they grow deeper and deeper in love with Jesus that there are just parts they do not understand about God. There's a sense that as we grow deeper in love with Jesus and more in love with God and more knowledgeable and experience him more fully that we actually end up with more questions. I think that's really good. Far be it from any of us to have a God in our own making that never contradicts us. You know what that is? That's me. That's just looking in the mirror and saying, I agree with myself. Let me invite the band to come on up right now. You know, the Holy Spirit has a role in all of this. And I'm going to offer up to you three ideas about what the Spirit does that we know from Scripture. Jesus, in promising the Spirit in John 14, says, The Holy Spirit will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I've said to you. And how much do we need the Holy Spirit as teacher when we come across difficult theological truths? He's also called the Comforter. This doctrine of election is a gift. It's a great source of comfort for the sinner. Why? Because your salvation does not consist in your effort. Paul makes it explicit. Jacob, chosen in the womb before he did a single thing right or wrong, through no effort or running or memorizing of principles or living those principles out relatively perfectly in your mind. None of that. Redeemed by choice. When well-meaning people seek to help God's image by stripping him of his sovereign hand, he, they inadvertently rob people of this gift of security. They inadvertently take away this from the guilty sinner that's been saved now. Finally, the Holy Spirit is a seal. Think of him like an engagement ring. Ephesians says we were sealed in the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. 
His presence in our life isn't just for daily deciding which way to go and, and giving us wisdom and teaching and instructing us. It's also a guarantee that we are children of the promise, that we are the Israel within Israel. Listen to how Galatians 3.29 says it. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Friends, us Gentiles have been grafted into this good news. That's why we sing and celebrate. Would you close your eyes with me? God, we give you praise and we want to express with our mouth even now that we trust you and trust your character. Would you give us eyes to see Jesus, we thank you for the promised Holy Spirit. God, we thank you for sending your Son. Right now, God, give us submission, give us a yielding. Amen.